Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to a Big Heads Media Podcast. When bodies are found, there's always some sort of mystery behind it. But sometimes, there's a lot of mystery behind it. Tonight, we're talking Point Township, Pennsylvania, and Niteroi, Brazil. All that and more on Small Town Secrets. Hello, and welcome everyone to episode two of season two of Small Town Secrets. And uh, wow, it took way too many times to do that little intro part at the beginning of the show. I know you won't hear it, but I did it like six times, way more times than I probably should have done it or needed to do it. But it just wasn't quite working out, but we got it. I got it in the end. Tonight is another episode that I've been looking forward to doing for a long time. Possibly longer than than uh, last last episode. I know I said that was an exciting one. I was happy to get to, but this one I'm really happy to get to. I'm going to talk about a case that has been floating around 
for years in both the UFO circles, the true crime circles, maybe even some cryptid stuff. We're going to talk about the Todd C's case out of Point Township, Pennsylvania, a case that I think needs to get a lot more coverage. Uh, people need to get more excited about it. I think it's kind of been forgotten, and really it shouldn't be. Like There should be so much going on with this story, and I just think it's not getting its due. I think it got a lot of steam at the beginning and then kind of conked out, but we're going to talk about it, maybe breathe some new life into it. And then we're going to travel on down to Nitoroi. And yes, I use that YouTube uh, pronounce video to figure out how to say that. So if I'm saying it wrong, it's uh, YouTube's fault. Uh, Nitoroi, Brazil, and talk about the lead mass mystery, which... Oof. That one ended up being so much more work, so much more research than I originally thought. Like, it, So there's a lot. There's a lot in that one. This is going to be a pretty beefy episode, I bet. And uh, we'll get into it. Um, of course... Like always, we have some promos, well, a promo, from another Big Heads Media podcast. This episode, we are shining some light on Docs That Rock, so take a listen and check them out. Hello from Ireland. Need to catch up on your documentaries? Well, don't worry, we've got you covered. Here at Docs That Rock, we review the best documentaries on the planet. Watch out because they're not spoiler-free, but hey, that might suit you. Subscribe and download the weekly dish on Docs That Rock. Available at BigHeadsMedia.com and all good podcast providers. So as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, the Todd C's case, it's been around for... I don't know. Well, I mean, it happened back in 2002, but I think it got a lot of coverage way later. I bet it's been a good decade. Um, and there was there was a lot of hubbub about it at the very beginning, and then it sort of died down. But it's such an interesting rabbit hole that I cannot believe that it's not more talked about today. So we're going to talk about it tonight and see if we can breathe some new life into such an interesting story. On the morning of August 4th, 2002, around 5 a.m., Todd Sees got up, grabbed his bow, hopped on his ATV, and went off to do a little deer hunting. Todd would never be seen alive again. It would be mystery after mystery, layer after layer, and to this day, we still don't have a lot of answers. Uh, and here's a side note, because I just saw it in my notes. I can't even find, like, a picture that I can definitively say that's a picture of Todd C's. All I have, and I think all anyone has really, is the newspaper clipping from when he was found. There's a picture of him, and uh, it's on the Phantom is a Monsters blog, which we'll get into in a little bit. But it, and that's not even like, and it's a very tiny picture. Like it's not a high resolution picture or anything. It's almost like even from even me trying to do this, I couldn't get you know, anything solid. I had a picture for a long time that was like, oh, there's one of them. And then I did some digging, and I don't think that was him. I think that was either, like, the, the it turned out to be, like, someone who hosted the website that the image was off of, or someone who wrote the article or something. So that's what this is kind of getting at. You're going to get into a lot of, oof, a lot of, like, just dead ends and just why. Like, why can't this information be found? Starting with a good photo of Todd C's. Todd lived in Point Township 
in Pennsylvania. I'm going to try really hard not to accidentally say Point Pleasant again. You didn't hear that. I edited it out, but I did. Just at the base of Montour Ridge, Todd left his home that morning and drove up the mountain trail like he did so many times before. He drove up to an area on the hill that had been cleared to make way for power lines. And you've probably seen this if you've driven past any hill. There'll be, you know, forest and woods, forest and woods, and then just a clear swath where they've cleared it all out so that power lines can run through it. That's what we're that's what we're talking about here. When Todd wasn't back by noon, and that's usually when he went out to do some deer hunting, do some deer spotting, he'd be back by noon, you know, five to noon. He'd be back by about that time. His family started to worry. They contacted the authorities, and soon a huge search for seas began. I'm talking local and state police, search and rescue officers, search dogs, helicopters, and a team that included over 200 volunteers. This massive search effort covered a large area, including the seas property, which included a pond, more on that later, and most of all, most of Montar Ridge. They would find his ATV. It was filled with fuel and, and nothing really suspicious about it. They would also find one of his boots up in a tree, 75 feet up in a tree. All in all, a 36-hour search was conducted and nothing was found. It would not be until the second morning when Todd's body would be discovered by the pond in his backyard. This pond is a mere 70 so feet from the family's back door and had been searched the previous day. The fact that he went missing in the first place is an actual mystery. But add to that his remains seemingly vanished for almost two days only to appear in an obvious place only adds to the mystery, and it wouldn't end there. According to many witnesses, both professional and the citizens, his body appeared emaciated and decomposed, moderate to heavy decomposition. It was like he had been dead for weeks, not hours. The coroner said he had been dead for 24 to 46 hours. His death was chalked up to an overdose of cocaine. And I have a, I have a couple pictures on the website that show the overhead kind of Google map views of his house, where the pond's at, where he was found at. And you can see like it is kind of a dense area around the pond. It's like there's a yard and then it gets to the pond and the yard kind of stops and it's overgrown a little bit. But the fact that like, you know, they had walked over his body, literally probably walked over his body and didn't find it for 36 hours. And that's just, that's insane, quite frankly. Speared on by the events I've just described, Lon Strickler, a Fortean researcher, author, and blogger, and Butch Wachowski of the Cold Case Unit of the UFO Research of Pennsylvania decided to look into the case. It would be the beginning of one of the hardest to dig rabbit holes either one of them had ever encountered. As soon as Lon and Butch started researching the case, they quickly seemed to hit brick wall after brick wall. Let's go through a list of things they found and a couple of the, the dead ends they uh, hit. One, who was the coroner? It appears as though James F. Kelly would have been the coroner for the C's case. I'm pretty sure I looked it up and he was the coroner for this county at the time. He was elected in 2001, and I think he's the coroner today. The reason I say I think that is because on the county's website, it says he's still the coroner, but then I found like another news article 
where he was going to resign in 2004. So I don't know, maybe he didn't, I don't know if he just didn't end up resigning or maybe he ran again or what's going on there. Todd Sees died in 2002, which means Kelly would have been the coroner. However, he said that he was not the active coroner on the Sees case. So who was? Two, the police never found most of his clothing. Just the one shoe, the other one is still missing, and his coat. They searched the coat for the keys to the ATV, but found instead a small vial of cocaine. This uh, small vial was found after the autopsy was performed magically. He had cocaine in his system, and magically uh, they found cocaine on his clothing, in his clothing. It took 16 hours for C's body to be brought to the hospital. This is not normal, and no one seems to know or wants to fess up to where his body was for those 16 hours. As I stated earlier, there was a small trace of degraded cocaine found in his system. It was a very small amount, and not nearly enough to point to an overdose. Other than the trace amount of drugs in his system, he seemed in perfect health. The family was not allowed to identify the body. To this day, no one is really sure who identified the body. Lon and Butch have been told that the sheriff did, that a firefighter did, and a couple of friends. And I don't think either one of these friends were like new friends. I think one was like a dude from high school and one was like someone he worked with or something. Uh, but no one from the family, no, there was never, you know, never a solid identification. It was like, oh, this is Todd, everyone you know. And I mean, for a small town like that, it, that could be the case. You know, everyone would know who he was. It took six weeks for his remains to be released to the family. And when they finally got the body, it was in a sealed casket that they weren't allowed to open. Uh, I want to point out that if you're interested in this story, I have linked to it in the show notes. But this was done a while back on Banal of America, uh, Season 8, Episode 22. That's where I first heard about it, Ed. Lon's on there, and Butch is on there, and it is uh, a tremendous show. It's not, I mean, you've heard me talk about Tim Banal because he's the, he's the news guy on Coast to Coast, and I get a lot of news stories from that website that he has a hand in, but he used to have this great esoteric paranormal podcast. He doesn't really do it so much anymore. Every once in a while, he'll throw one out there, but he has like, oh, God, he's got to have 300 episodes, so check that out. Listen to that, and you know, you'll get some other stuff that I'm not mentioning here. Um, you get to hear uh, Lon's bizarre Bigfoot encounter from when he was younger. And I'm also getting a lot of this information from Lon's blog, Phantoms and Monsters, which is a great resource. Please go there and dig through that. The tagline on the blog is Pulse of the Paranormal, and uh, I'd have to agree with that. It really is the pulse of the paranormal and has been for quite some time. But... He did mention on that podcast, that's the reason why I stopped and want to talk about it now, that someone told him, I think it was someone from the military or something, that the only reason that they would send back a sealed body is if it had a pathogen or something that would have been contagious that they didn't want to spread. I'd also go out on a limb and say that maybe if a body was irradiated in some shape or form that it might also be sealed, but... That's just me speculating. I can't say for sure. Uh, many people surrounding the event were repeatedly told by the FBI, in quotes. Alon mentions 
a lot that he seems to think that this is the FBI. These FBI agents were actually probably military personnel. That uh, they were warned by the FBI not to talk about the case. It's taken years for Lana Butch to recover even slight amounts of Todd's records. So far, the only thing they've really gotten is his social security number. No high school transcripts. They can't find his military record. They can't find any criminal history. You know, no speeding tickets, no parking tickets, no anything. They can't even find his hunting license. And uh, on on the Banal of America pod- podcast, Butch points out that he can go back and find the results of his driving test from like 1970 something. So he, if he can find records that far back, something as minute as a driving test, why can't he find Todd's, well, anything? To add further to the mystery, there were two UFO reports that came from around the area at around the time when Todd was out hunting. Both reports told a similar story. A saucer-shaped craft was beaming or seemed to be transporting up a human body by some sort of light beam. What happened to Todd Seas is indeed a massive mystery. Even if it's not aliens or something paranormal, it's something very, very odd. And I have to agree with that. I mean, I'd be interested because, like I said, in that podcast, they do kind of mention offhand that he was in the military. So there's that. Um, There's always that. It would be, you know, that's what I want to see. I want to see, like, what did he do in the military? What was his unit or, you know, what was he doing? But once again, they can't find it. Go on, listen to that podcast, and they really kind of get into it. But it is, to me, if it's a UFO thing, like, it should be so much more talked about. And I think there have been a couple of other podcasts that have that have dotted on it throughout throughout time. And I occasionally check back on the Phantoms and Monsters uh, blog to see if there's been any updates. And really, I don't think there's been... There's been some updates about how the Montour Ridge area it is kind of fraught with uh, UFO sightings going back into the mid-90s. And I've linked... Obviously, I've linked to it in the show notes. You can go and you can read up on those other reports that happened before Todd and after Todd. Yeah, but yeah, it's such an interesting case. It needs more people looking at it. It needs more eyes on it. It needs more exposure. But we're going to take... Well, I guess we're not going to take a break. I'm going to take a break. I'll be back in a couple of seconds, actually. And we're going to talk about Niteroi, Brazil, which is a far older case. I think a far more well-known case, but it has got some... It has got some levels to it. And that's an exciting one that we'll talk about after the boom here. Just outside of Rio de Janeiro in Brazil lies the city of Niteroi, a name that means hidden water. It's home to the Museum of Contemporary Art of Niteroi and the richest city in Brazil. However, in 1966, it became known for a most puzzling case, the Lead Mask Case, or the Lead Mask Mystery. Actually, that one sounds better, doesn't it? It all started when young Jorge da Costa, I believe that's his name, I got that from one source, was out, he was either hunting or he was either hunting birds or flying his kite. I've seen a couple, I've seen sources that say both. But it was he was out. He was doing something. 
Uh, it was out on the afternoon of August 20th, 1966. The boy was playing at a place called Ventum Hill. While flying his kite, or hunting, uh, playing and doing just what young boys do, he stumbled upon the deceased bodies of two men and promptly reported it to the police. Soon the police and a few firefighters showed up on the scene. They were baffled by what they saw. The two bodies were arrested beside each other, each wearing a suit, a waterproof coat, and an eye mask made of lead. There were other objects found around the bodies as well, such as a water bottle, towels, and a notepad. Written in the notepad, in neither of the two men's handwriting, by the way, were these odd notes. One, Sunday, one capsule after lunch. Two, Wednesday, one capsule at bedtime. Three, be at the place arranged at 1630. Four, take capsules at 1830. Five, after feeling the effects, protect half the face with lead mask. Six, await the agreed signal. The men were identified as Miguel Jose Vena and Manuel Pera de Cruz. They were both electric technicians from the nearby town of Campos... I'm going to try. Ready? <clears throat> Campos do Costese. But I'm just going to say Campos from now on, because I'm sure I didn't do that right. The two men were suspected of carrying out clandestine experiments around the town of Campos. On the 13th of that same year, or on the, on the same month, I think. Yeah, it was like a week or so before. A large explosion rocked at Tafana Beach, a beach close to Campos. After the explosion, strange devices were said to have been found in a nearby garden, and this garden, I think, would turn out to be a Manuel's. Both Miguel and Manuel were seen at both of these locations. On August 17th, the two men set off on a bus. They told their families they were going into Sao Paulo to buy a car and some electrical equipment. They brought with them around 3 million cruzeiros, which is about 274 bucks in today's US dollars, according to coinmill.com. However, they didn't go to Sao Paulo. They headed straight towards Niteroi. The bus stopped in Niteroi at around 2 p.m., and as the bus pulled in, it started to rain. Because of this, the two men purchased raincoats. They then went into a nearby bar and bought a bottle of mineral water. When questioned about it later, the bartender said that one of the men seemed very agitated and was constantly looking at his watch. Ironically, the last person to see the men alive might have been the first person to find them dead. Allegedly, young Jorge saw the men later that day, the day they got there, not the day he found them, sitting on the hill. The next day, he saw them again on the hill, lying down. Thinking they were asleep, he left. It would be the next day when he found them a third time, and that would be the time that he was like, oh, they're dead, and he contacted the police. No one really knows what the two were up to, or how they died. Of course, there are theories abound. Were they UFO contactees, and their attempt at contact didn't go as planned? Is it possible that they discovered something in the radio experiments that got them in hot water with the government? And we'll talk about that in a little bit. How about this one? Were they attempting to carry out a high-frequency thought wave telekinetic, telepathic, I am sorry, experiment using LSD and or mescaline to attain higher brain activity? Maybe. That's a thing that they might have might have done. Or was it a simple drug overdose? Who knows what was in the capsules? No remnants of the capsules were found. It came out later 
that a friend of Miguel Emanuel named Elcio Gomez told authorities that they were part of a movement known as Scientific Spiritualist. He proposed that the two men were using their experiments to communicate with beings on Mars. Gomez was also at Atafana Beach and at Manuel's garden, where the three men carried out some of the experiments that resulted in explosions. So there were explosions both at the beach and at the garden. Uh, I don't think they were intentional explosions, I think they were accidental explosions. It's interesting to note that the beach, there were reports of bright lights in the sky before their experiment. The Brazilian Navy and Air Force also monitored strange radio conversations during the event. They picked up transmissions from three unknown amateur radio stations, CKJ-22, CK-22, and CJK-21. And this is where I'm getting at. It's almost like these guys were, you know, maybe they got in some hot water with the government because they were, you know, transmitting they weren't supposed to transmit. Or maybe they stumbled upon some sort of transmission that they weren't supposed to stumble upon and, you know, you end up dead on a mountaintop with lead over your eyes. But the story doesn't end there. Well, it doesn't begin there. A year before, another dead man was found. He was a TV technician, and he was found at Moro de Cruzeiro. Next to his body was a lead eye mask. What were these masks for? Some say they were for protection against radiation. However, you would need a lot more than some lead over your eyes to protect yourself from radiation. And there's a great, I have linked to it in the show notes, there's a great article at Skeptoid about this case and what these masks might have been for and what they might have been doing. And I think there's also an episode of the podcast that goes along with it. So check that out to see what they have to say. That's where I kind of got this uh, radiation's not going to work against lead mask. Which, no, it wouldn't. Unless... I mean, you would have to have your full body probably covered to protect against radiation. Unless these guys just were very naive about it and were like, Oh, yeah, some eye masks will be good. However, when both the men's homes were searched, the police found tools and scrap lead, as well as a book that talked about, among other things, intense luminosity when dealing with spirits. Were these masks created to protect their eyes from such a powerful light? And maybe, but it's... It seems like it doesn't work for me because if you're wearing something over your eyes, don't you still want to see through it? Like if you were just need, if you just didn't want to look at something, you could have easily just maybe put your hands over your eyes. Unless the light is so bright and so powerful that even putting your hands over it is, is going to go through. You, I, I can't. I don't know if I can wrap my brain around uh, a light that bright. That's so bright that, hey, you gotta put lead over your eyes because that's the only thing that is not going to permeate. Not steel, not like a really high powerful welding visor. Nah, it's gotta be lead. And that's kinda where it ends. Uh, we don't know, you know? And then you have the other guy that attended it a year before. Not a lot of information on him. It would be interesting to see, to find out more about it. At least find a name or something to corroborate that earlier story. But that is the story, that is the case, the mystery of the lead mask. What were they doing there? So many things. The notes, the capsules, what was in the capsules? Was Were they just tripping on LSD and they tripped a little too hard? What was going on there? What were these lead masks and these strange notes and the clandestine experiments and all of that great stuff? 
This is it's it's a really great just kind of old school 60s UFO. People were doing all sorts of crazy stuff in the 60s to try and get a hold of some UFOs to try and talk to some aliens. And this is one I think a story that branches off from from that thinking. And that is like I said the lead mass mystery. We're going to take a, a short musical interlude, new music tonight, a little a little ditty called Crossroads. And we're going to come back and do some local headlines. Let's dig into the local headlines for this episode. The first one is short and sweet and really is like a local headline. But I always love these little kind of UFO reports that pop up in small papers and websites and stuff. This is from the Pal Tribune. I am not seeing... Oh, yes, there it is. By C.J. Baker is the writer of this little article. And it's UFOs reported south of town. Officers find nothing. Law enforcement officers were unable to identify or even find... Well, they're UFOs. Of course you're unable to identify them. There, It's in the name. Some UFOs that were reported in the Powell area earlier this month. At 11.23 p.m. on Wednesday, August 7th, a woman called the Park County Sheriff's Office and described seeing a dark-colored UFO and a lighter one flying less than half a mile south of town. A sheriff's deputy arrived in the area of 980 Road 9 about 20 minutes later. I think they're saying 20 minutes after the call. And no lights were visible. The woman, who the sheriff's office said was not from around here, explained that she had seen six or seven blue and white lights hovering and not blinking. 
She also spoke with a trooper from the Wyoming Highway Patrol about the unidentified flying objects. She said that she saw one land in a far-off cornfield. She pointed in that direction for the trooper, while the other one flew over the road, said Lance Mathis, a spokesman for the sheriff's office. The trooper didn't see either one, but did say that the reporting party showed no signs of impairment. As for what the woman saw, the deputy surmises they may have been a drone in the area, Mathis said. There were no other similar reports that night or since. And this next one comes from the Daily Mirror. It's over in Britain, so it is the mirror. We will take that with a grain of salt. But it has a very awesome video, and even if it's fake, it was very well done. And this was written by... I just saw his name. Where'd it go? John Bett. And this is Half Man, Half Owl That Scares Off Holiday Makers, filmed in Graveyard. A mythical half man, half owl that scares off holiday makers in Cornwall has been filmed in a graveyard, it's claimed. The Owl Man of a Manwan Smith has been the subject of folklore since the 1920s, but there haven't been any sightings since 1976. More than 40 years later, ghost hunter Mark Davies claims he's caught the infamous character on camera. In the footage, Mark and a friend can be seen prowling around the spooky graveyard, which lies behind a gate with a dramatic-looking inscription. It reads, Dathaimi Nesi Dadua which is Cornish and translates to, it's good to dry nigh to the Lord. Mark holds out a spiritual detector and pans his camera around the graveyard asking if any creature lives here. Then in the corner of the frame, a ghostly figure can be seen. But when Mark goes to investigate, the apparition has vanished and he could find no more trace of the owl man. According to local folklore, two teenage girls once spotted the figure while on holiday in Manwan Smith near Falmouth in Cornwall. One day, they walked down to an old and remote church, more than a mile from the village center. There, the two teenagers saw a terrifying birdman with wings and feathers on top of a church tower. The story says that they were so scared by the sighting that their father decided to put an end to their holidays and leave Cornwall immediately. In July of that same year, two 14-year-old girls decided to go camping in the area, but spotted a giant owl of human size with glowing eyes. At the time, all eyes turned to the village and the discovery made the headlines, naming the beast the Owl Man of Manwan Smith. Although Cornish people still remembered story, many say they have not heard of a name for many years. People at a local pub, the Red Lion, the post office, and the Memorial Hall had heard of the tale of the hybrid beast, but said that they did not know enough about it to comment. Penny Salisbury said, I haven't heard it mentioned for years and years, since it first happened, actually. It was a media event at the time. People were scared to go to church afterwards. The Alman looked quite menacing from the pictures and drawings made by the girls involved. Mark Davis, 47, from Falmouth, Cornwall, was in the graveyard with his friend Chris Power, 36, from Manchester. Mark said, there's ley lines which are under the ground near the church and they give off paranormal activity. There was a hissing in the trees and you could hear flapping. I heard it go right over my head as I, and I was shocked. That's when I saw the figure and it had its horns on its head. It was mad. On the meter I had, which picks up electromagnetic energy that we use to detect ghosts, I was getting conscious replies to my questions through it. That's telling me there's a demonic energy and it wasn't safe. My mate got attacked. He had scratches on his arm his cam and his camera broke. He didn't see anything. He just felt the surge of energy. He didn't realize all about it till half an hour later when he felt something burning. 
It's not a place I would advise anyone going there to alone. Let's put it that way. And this last one is also from England, and it comes from the independent.co.uk. Uh, this one is written by Vincent Wood. This is beachgoers left struggling to breathe after mystery, after mystery incident at Essex Seaside. An investigation is underway after multiple beachgoers in Essex Seafront said they had been left coughing and struggling to breathe. Police, ambulance, and fire service personnel were all called to the coast near 4th Avenue in Frenton-on-Sea. After receiving calls at around 2 p.m. on Sunday as people took to the coast to cool off during the hottest spell of the bank holiday weekend weather on record. One person tweeted that there were lots of people coughing heavily, while a mother said her son began coughing after swimming and had to be given his inhaler. Miriam Lanswell, a mental health worker from Derbyshire, was on a family day out when one of her twin 10-year-old daughters was left grasping, gasping for breath. She said, my daughter started coughing. She said, I don't feel good. It hurts to breathe in. My other daughter was gasping and couldn't form words because she couldn't breathe well enough. The 45-year-old said that she had also found it difficult to breathe as she dried off from her dip in the water. It is currently unclear as what caused the incident. However, some in the area have speculated that the symptoms may have been caused by pollution from a fuel spill. Both police and ambulance services operating the area have not confirmed this to be the case stating that this cause is unknown. Mrs. Lansdale added, My dad said he had been asked to get out of the water by a man on a boat. He asked why, and the man said there had been a fuel spill. He said if anyone is having difficulty breathing difficulties, they should probably call an ambulance. A spokeswoman for East of England Ambulance Service said, We are aware of an incident on Sunday, 25th of August, with reports of a number of people suffering from coughing on the seafront off 4th Avenue in Frenton. We are assisting the police and the fire services with the incident. The cause is currently unknown. Uh, I'll keep an eye on that, maybe, and see if anything pops up to be like, what was it? If there's a concrete reason for it. But that has been this episode's local headlines. We're going to wrap up the show here with a couple of listener stories, and that will be it for this episode. And we have, once again, two listener stories to close out episode two. The first one is from Harriet Christable in Aberdeen, Scotland. She sent me a little news clipping. Uh, This happened in the very, very tiny village where I grew up. Pretty much everything that happens there is a secret, though, because it's so remote. And then she sent me a little news clipping from the Press and Journal. This is written by David Kerr. And the headline is, Forensic Expert Investigates Scene Where Island Couple Were Found Dead. Specialist officers from the mainland have been drafted into the Western Isles to help investigate the mysterious deaths of a village postmaster and his wife. The bodies of Donald and Morag McMillan were found behind bins at their home in Graver in South Locks area of the east coast of Lewis on Friday. The discovery of the couple sparked a major investigation at the weekend, with police describing the death as unexplained. It is understood local officers had attended the scene following a report of just one casualty and were shocked to discover a second body nearby. And last night, a specialist team of forensic examiners arrived on the island to carry out an extensive search of the house and grounds to try and piece together what had happened. A blue-colored forensic tent, 
Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> a blue-colored forensic tent was erected on a sloping part of the lawn while a police officer stood guard at the scene. Officers were also carrying out investigations in the garden and at the path in front of the house. Police say it could take a number of days before the circumstances behind the double tragedy are established. However, it's understood that there are no suspicious circumstances at this stage. A police spokeswoman said, following the report of the two sudden deaths at Gravier, area in the Isle of Lewis on Friday, November 18, 2016, Police Scotland can confirm the names of the deceased as 73-year-old Donald McMillan and his wife, Morag McMillan, who is 67 years old. The investigation into the circumstances of their deaths are continuing. The deaths of Mr. and Mrs. McMillan continue to be treated as unexplained. Inspector Rodney McKay has previously said that his force will consider all factors, including whether the bitterly cold temperatures may have played a role in the couple's tragic death. Mr. McMillan was known locally as a boy, and he had chalked up around 50 years of service in the post office. He was a third generation of his family to run the service, and he was due to give up the post soon. A 73-year-old was also operated an outreach post office service two days a week in the Crescetta Resource Center, a community hub for the wider Perrick area. Mrs. McMillan, who was also known as Maureen, was originally from Harris and had previously worked at a nearby primary school. She was also a care assistant for a neighbor. The pair, who had no children, were well known in the community and helped out fundraising for local causes. They were also involved in the Perrick Historic Society. A spokesman for the group said, words cannot express our shock as community to this news. Maureen and Donald were so involved in our community that this is hard to comprehend that we won't see them again. They were, very active they were very active members of our common historical society since the day they, they were, since the day it was founded, and Maureen has been a treasurer for as long as I can remember. She also managed our local magazine, mailing, and so many other aspects of our society. Indeed, both of them were a fountain of knowledge, which we called on very often. We extend our sympathies to their many friends and relatives in this sad time. Local counselor Philip McLean said, the post office they ran was the heart of the South Locks community, and everybody living locally has been in that office to buy stamps and collect parcels, so they were known to all. They were also active in the Perrick, the Perrick Historical Society and the Ravens Point Center in Kershader, and were at the forefront of fundraising for many local groups. You would see them at local events, and they were always together. They will be sorely missed, and my thoughts and prayers are with the family and friends at this very sad time. And our last story comes from uh, the crew at the Small Room Podcast uh, from Killeen, Texas. I'm not sure they're from Killeen, Texas, but this is where the story is. A Haunted Bridge story. And I, they told me just to Google the Maxdale Haunted Bridge, so that's what I did. And I found uh, a very nice little article that really isn't a, like a haunted article. They talk about it, but it's just... Uh, a man named Nathan Edge, he goes around photographing bridges in Texas and talking about them. So he actually wrote a nice little article. And I, I looked at a couple of them and they just weren't doing doing it for me. But his talks about the bridge. It talks about kind of what happens on the bridge. And he's got some great pictures of it and some great video of it. So I'm going to read his article. I'm going to link it in the show notes. And this is the Haunted Maxdale Bridge in Colleen, Texas by Nathan Edge. For the second installment of Texas Bridges, I rode on Sunday, 4-15-18, to shoot a 104-year-old bridge in Colleen, rumored to be haunted. The Maxdale Bridge is a steel trush built, a steel trush bridge built in 1914, connecting Farm Road 2670 to the Maxdale Cemetery. The bridge took damage from multiple floods in 1957, 59, and 1965, and was eventually closed, barricaded off, and abandoned. 
Crossing the bridge feels rickety. The wooden surface has either rotted out or washed away in various spots and patched with plywood. With so many rumors surrounding the notorious Texas landmark, it's possible to hear a different ghost story every time you ask a local. A girl who was fishing under the bridge told me that it was haunted by the lost souls of children who had been driven over the side in a school bus. She said that there was even a memorial for them to the entrance to prove it. It turned out to only be a placard placed by the builders, Hess and Skinner. The legend has it that a man once hung himself on the bridge after his girlfriend drowned in the Lampasas River below. They say if you stop on the bridge, turn off your headlights, count to ten, and then turn your headlights back on, you'll see a man hanging from a noose. With an outlawed spirit, we crossed the barricade and drove across the bridge on our Harleys. However, we rode out at sunset, so I can't confirm or deny the infamous ghost story. If you really want to know the truth behind the Honda Maxwell Bridge, I recommend you go check it out for yourself. My plan is to continue shooting Texas bridges and display a gallery during the East Austin Photo Tour in November of 2018. If you appreciate this project and would like to see more content like this, please like, share, so that I know what I'm doing is right. If you have a favorite Texas bridge you'd like for me to cover, please leave a comment and I'll go there. So I, I'll link this. It's a really nice little blog, great pictures of this bridge and others. But I always like a good haunted bridge. They're all over the place. And I would like to thank, once again, the guys or the people from uh, the Small Room Podcast for uh, shooting that over to me. If you have a small town secret, a small town story to share, it could be anything really... Uh, a murder, uh, a mystery, UFO sighting, a cryptid sighting, ghost. Uh, it can be a personal experience. It can be a local legend, kind of like these were both. Well, one was kind of an actual article, obviously. But, you know, the the bridge was a nice kind of urban legend of the town. Those are always fun. But I like personal experiences, too. I like things that, you know, the stuff that people don't hear because it's such a small place. And those are the people that know about it, so I want to hear about it from you. If you want to share that, there's a bunch of ways to do it. Uh, go to stscast.com, scroll down to the bottom of the main page. There will be an email form down there, a submission form that you can send me your story on. You can go to Reddit and go to r slash stslistenerstories and go to our subreddit and leave your story there. Or you can get at me on social media. And that is at STScast on Twitter, at STScast on Facebook, and at STScast.gram on Instagram. And that is going to wrap up episode 2.02 of Small Town Secrets. Um, Please, if you get a chance, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on your podcatcher of choice, uh, especially if it's iTunes. Please check out Big Heads Media. They've, there's a bunch of great shows. They're adding more every day. You will find something for whatever you're into. Oh, and also, I forgot to plug this at the beginning of the show. Uh, if you're looking for good soap, like really good soap and other other products to clean your stinky, stinky body, then head over to Dirty Knees Soap Company and use my offer code STSCAST at checkout. You'll get 10% off and I will get credit for that sale. Or if you want, yeah, there's also a click-through link uh, on my website that will also take you the dirty knees and give me credit. But you always have to use the code for your 10% off. That would be helpful if there's a way you want to support the soap. And the, <laughs> if you want to support the show and get some great soap, then do that. Uh, there are other ways to support the show. I've got merch. I actually 
uh, switch stores, I'm going to give another place a shot because they had some, I think, some better products and it was a little simpler to deal with. So I'm going to play around with the two stores and see which one kind of performs better. If you did order something off of Teespring, that store is still there. It's still active. I'm just not linking to it at the moment on the website, but it's still around. So it's not like you're not going to get stuff. But I just I wanted to ch- I wanted to play around with this other other place and see what they had to offer, and that's a great way that will help the show out immensely. If you want to support the show and don't have the funds to help out with some merch, then just tell people. Uh, get on Twitter and let everyone know. Get on Facebook, let everyone know about this show. Tell a friend. Get a couple people to listen, and we've been growing. Every episode, every episode has been getting, you know, just a nice, steady, nice, steady climb in listenership. And I hope it continues for quite some time. But I'm going to go ahead and sign off for this week. I hope everyone has a great weekend and a great couple of weeks. We'll be back for episode three in two weeks. And just remember, until then, every town has a secret. What? is yours. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.